Not on. I am on. Okay. Me and this microphone gonna fight, man. We always <laughs> seem to not get along. Uh, good morning, family. It is so awesome to be here with you all. Uh, I, I said in the first service that, you know, intros like that, it, it, it adds to the pressure, at least in my mind, because I feel the pressure to try to live up to all that good stuff he said. I mean, in my opinion, he was overselling just a little bit, but um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, James, thank you, sir. Thank you uh, to Riverside, to all of those in leadership as well for giving me the opportunity. Um, to, to really grow and develop in, in the gifts that God has given me. Just grateful to be here. I love all y'all. And uh, I also want to say, too, that I, I, don't, I never like coming behind uh, the children's sermon preachers because they seem to be able to preach circles around anybody that comes up here. And so it's like, yeah, you pretty much said it. So, all right, I'll just go ahead and give my little two cents and, and we'll be done. Um, but I think that just speaks to the effectiveness of our children's discipleship team. And so I'm grateful to them and uh, the work that they're doing. So that being said, um, today is a special day. As uh, James pointed out, it is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, two very good and, and really celebratory days. Sanctity of Life Sunday, as he pointed out, um, is committed to celebrate God's gift of life. It's also to commemorate and lament the many lives lost to abortion and to commit ourselves to protecting human life at every stage, not just the womb, but also from the womb to the tomb. MLK Day, as many of you know, um, is a day dedicated to commemorating the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who did so much to champion the cause of civil rights and racial justice for blacks and other minorities in this country. It is a special day, however, Fortunately, in uh, 2022.0, I mean 2021, uh, in our current socio-political climate, the causes that these two days are meant to commemorate and champion, for some reason, have been pitted against each other. And by the way, when I say our socio-political climate, I mean the church's socio-political climate. Uh, the elephant in the room, as we all know, is what transpired last Wednesday. Events like we saw last week in the Capitol, they're no longer an anomaly that we can just distance ourselves from and chalk up to those crazy bunch of extremists over there. We gotta own this. We gotta own this. Now, I'm gonna try something. I did it in the first service and it went pretty well, but in the spirit of encouraging audience interaction, because I don't believe I attend the dead church, A to the man, so, um, in the spirit of that, I'm going to try something that I, I used to do in my old church. Um, the preacher would, you know, kind of say, look to your neighbor and then repeat after, you know, what the preacher said. I'm going to try that here at Riverside. Y'all going to participate with me? Yes. All right, cool. Okay, so look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, we need to own this. Okay, y'all doing low-key, y'all are doing a little better than the first crowd, so... <laughs> Don't tell them I said that, though. Like, we're not live streaming, are we? Okay, all right. Like I said, events like last week, we can't distance ourselves from. We got to own it. David French wrote a, a brilliant article about the events that transpired. He said, a violent Christian insurrection invaded and occupied the Capitol. Why do I say it was a Christian insurrection? 
because so very many of the protesters told us they were Christian as loudly and as clearly as they could, and the entire world was watching. So I have a, a, a picture of one of the many images that we saw from last week. Uh, aside from that one, that's probably the most infamous image we saw. There were Jesus saved signs sprinkled throughout the crowd. There was a giant wooden cross seen outside of the Capitol. There were reports of Christian music blaring over the loudspeakers. In my opinion, it was CCM. Um, <laughs> a Christian flag was carried into the legislative chamber. And throughout this election process, I don't know if you all were paying attention, but we had pastors, preachers, prophets declare that President Trump's victory was assured. And when it wasn't, they laughed. Some laughed really creepy. Uh, they, they scoffed. They falsely accused. They prayed. They fasted. They called for African angelic reinforcement. When I heard this, I'm like, bruh. Um, y'all leave our angels alone. We need them. <laughs> I'm just being real. Like, and they even pronounced God's cursing on the conspirators who stole the election and on everyone who believed that the election was legit. It was bad look, y'all. And to, to, to just be real, open, honest, because we're, we're family, right? I, I can be real with y'all, right? So, just as we would like to distance ourselves from those extremists who stormed the Capitol, I, as a black Christian, wanted to distance myself from my white brothers and sisters, if I'm just going to be totally honest. There's a part of me that's like, y'all need to get it together. Um, um, I was listening to a podcast by Jamar Tisby uh, last week, and he, he, he made the statement that many of us as black Christians are frustrated because we feel like we, we, we've been told y'all. We, we, we've been saying this for a long time, that events like this were possible in light of the historic injustice across racial lines in our country. And so there's frustration there from, from being dismissed at times and being labeled and, in, and not being believed. There's a level of frustration. And as much as I would like to distance myself and say, you know what, we told you, we were right, I can't do that. Not with a clear conscience. And the reason is not because I'm so virtuous or good, but it's because there's a level of guilt by association. If the typical non-believer looks at this situation, they're not going to make the distinctions and qualifiers that we make. All they're going to see is just another example of Christians who talk the talk and don't walk the walk. And who can blame them? Who can blame them? We certainly can't because it seems we're confused about what it means to walk the walk ourselves. And sadly, we've equated our stance in Christ with our stance in politics to the point where, as, we, as I stated before, two worthy biblical causes, protecting the unborn on one hand, social justice, biblical justice on the other hand, the two things have been pitted against each other my fellow believers, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. This should not be. I could spend a great deal of time talking about how and why we got here, but I'm not going to do that. The bottom line is this. Your political party, our political party, or stance has no bearing on whether or not we walk like Jesus. 
nor does anything else outside of what God says in his word. Now today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I hope to reacquaint us with what truly determines if we're walking the walk. The good news is we can know. Look at your neighbor and say, we can know. We can know that we know him. In an age of constant misinformation, fake news, alternative facts, whatever you want to call it, where the truth can be so muddied and unclear that it creates anxiety in all of us, we can rest assured that it is possible to know that we know him. First John 2 and 3, John puts it this way, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, it's important to note here that this statement is not prescriptive. It's not, you don't keep his commandments in order to know him. It's not prescribing a course of action. It's descriptive. In other words, it's describing the ethical behavior of those who actually do know him. For instance, uh, in, in, in John's gospel, John 14, verses 15 through 17, John spells it out this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not a prescription or a prescribed course of action, it's just a statement of fact. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the, Lord, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John says also in 1 John 5 and 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandment. Also important to note, the notion of keeping God's commandments does not mean that we have this perfect sinless adherence to his law, right? None of us can follow God's commands perfectly. I mean, John spelled it out in, in the first chapter in, in, in verse 8 that he who says he doesn't have sin is a liar, right? Deceives himself. So it, it, keeping his commandments does not mean that you don't do anything wrong. The Greek word for keep here in this context conveys the idea of hiding or guarding one's treasure. In other words, if we truly know God, then we'll guard his word in our hearts like precious treasure. We'll keep it close. If you recall what David said in Psalm 119 and 11, he said, I have stored up your word in my heart. Other translations say, thy word have I hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. This is why John, by the way, can make such a bodacious claim in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, I don't know about anyone else, but the idea of being called a liar is not exciting. <laughs> but we, we shouldn't shrink away from it because the truth of God's word is meant to call liars to repentance. So if I find myself in that category, praise God. God, thank you for hitting me upside my head with truth and not allow, allowing me to continue living a lie. Thank you. Thank you for that. I can say that with assurance because I know that it's all love. 
It's all in love. Look at your neighbor and say, it's all love. It's all love. I can say that because to know God is to love God. Why? Because God is love. 1 John 4 and 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Not in the, the new agey universal sense of love being somehow or another deified in and of itself, but God epitomizes love. It is the very character, essence, and nature of God to love. One of our favorite verses that we quote, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but has everlasting life. He is the standard by which all love should be judged. To know God is to love him. And to love him is to obey him. I believe uh, 1 John 2 and 5 perfectly encapsulates this threefold truth. John says, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. To know God is to love God. To love God is to obey God. It's a threefold truth. You'll know that you know him when you treasure his word. But also, when your love matures and your capacity to love grows, the, the litmus test, the real litmus test for your love is not how well you love your family and friends. It's not. Those, those, those people are easy to love most of the time. Right? It's easy to love. Jesus says if you love those that love you, what reward is there, is there in that? The real test is when you can love your enemies, whether those enemies are actual or imagined. Now, in our society, and I say that meaning the church as well, we become experts at creating enemies. We've gotten really proficient at that. I feel like we're getting really good at the wrong stuff. <laughs> We've become professionals at creating enemies and treated them like absolute dirt without even getting to know them. If God were to treat us like we treated our imaginary enemies, I, I don't want to think about that. I, I don't want to think about that. We, ju we just look at your neighbor and say, we, we got to do better. We got to do better. Which brings me to my second, and believe it or not, my final point. We need to walk the walk. Need to walk the walk. First John 2 and 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So I'm reading this book right now by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. Jay Will says it's a gateway drug to reform theology. I'm, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to come out of Calvinist, you know, reading this book, but I mean, hey, it's cool. Uh, in the preface of the book, <laughs> in the preface of the book, uh, he actually references John McKay. And John McKay gives this thought on basically two kinds of Christians that really think through the, the things of Christianity differently. Two sets of people. There's balconiers and there's travelers. Balconiers and travelers, okay? The balconiers 
you know, the ones that are kind of sitting in the high place on the balcony. And don't take this the wrong way, people in the balcony right now. <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all are cool. Don't, don't, it's not about you. But the balconiers can overhear the travelers talk and chat with them. They may comment critically on the way that the travelers walk, or they may discuss questions about the road, how it can exist at all or lead anywhere, what might be seen from different points along it, and so forth. But they're onlookers. They're onlookers. They're not really the ones that are actually on the road traveling. And their problems are theoretical only. The travelers, by contrast, face problems which, though they have their theoretical angle, are essentially practical problems of the which way to go and how to make it type. Problems which call not merely for comprehension, but for decision and action too. Balconiers and travelers may think over the same area, yet their problems differ. Thus, for instance, in relation to evil, the balconier's problem is to find a theoretical explanation of how evil can consist with God's sovereignty and goodness. It's the problem of evil, right? The traveler's problem is how to master evil and bring good out of it. Two different problems. Or again, in relation to sin, the balconier asks whether racial sinfulness and personal perversity are really credible, while the traveler, knowing sin from within, asks what hope there is of deliverance. In other words, the balconier talks the talk. The traveler walks the walk, right? Now, on that note, I I just want to personally talk about a time in my life where I was clearly the balconier and not the traveler. And this is, while I am, I'm a, Uh, while I'm a believer. This is not me being unsaved. This is while I'm a believer. So at my mom and dad's church, um, as you all know, as James pointed out, I grew up in the church. I'm what you call a church drug baby. Okay, I was drugged to Sunday school. I was drugged to, you know, y'all get the picture. Every time the door is open, and I mean, they seem to be open seven days a week. I was there. I was there. And being so engrossed in church culture, if you're not careful, you can kind of develop a superiority complex to the point to where if others coming in don't have the same knowledge of your church culture, you can look down on them. And I made this mistake for years. People that I would see not dressed the right way, not looking the right way, you know, it's funny to me how I would look at, you know, somebody that had dreadlocks funny, and now I got them. But that, that, that's the way it was. And really what God used to change that mindset, oddly enough, was working with youth. Listening to their stories and listening to how they felt coming in. And the eyes that were peering on them and looking at them funny because they didn't fit the church culture norm. When I started to really just walk with them and come, on, come down off of my balcony and travel with them, it changed my perspective. On that note, what is it that gives John his credibility here? Why is John's assessment of walking the walk credible? Who does he think he is? From the heady intellectual logical standpoint, it's his eyewitness testimony, right? We're all familiar with how eyewitness testimony works. It's credible because the person was there 
And John, John uh, references this in the first chapter, that which we've seen, that which we've heard, that which we've touched, we proclaim to you. John's an eyewitness, but his eyewitness testimony was not limited to a one-time event. It is marked by an ongoing and intimate relationship with Jesus, and it shows. It shows. John was not a balconier. John was a traveler. And you can see it throughout his letter that this threefold concept, again, to know God is to love God. To love God is to obey God. This threefold concept directly informs his understanding of what marks someone who truly knows Jesus, who actually walks the walk. Jesus, if you want to go from John to Jesus, because we can't talk about John without talking about the one he followed, Jesus was not a balconier. He could have stayed one. Jesus had every right to stay up in his high balcony and theoretically talk about the issue of sin, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus became a traveler like us. One of my favorite verses, and I probably quoted it up in this pulpit numerous times, Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8, who, though he was in the form of God, talking about Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't hold on to his power, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was not a balconier. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus was not a balconier. And if we're going to walk like Jesus, then we can't be balconiers either. We can't be distant onlookers who distance ourselves from Jesus and from others just because they look bad. We can't be those who sit in our balconies, our high places, if you will, and simply theorize about and criticize the way other travelers walk. We can't do that. We got to walk with him in order to walk like him. We have to walk with Jesus in order to walk like him. You cannot disconnect the two. And walking with him will then inform how we walk with others. Now, J. Will, I mentioned this morning that I'm stealing your sticky note. I'm going to change the name of it, though. So uh, I'm, I'm going to give everybody food for thought. That's, that's not really copyright infringement, is it? I don't, yeah, don't, don't sue me. You ain't supposed to sue, you know, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ anyway. So uh, I want to leave this food for thought for you all. Check your walk. Check your walk. But don't check it using the wrong markers. Check it using the right ones. To know God is to love God. And to love God is to obey God. Those should be the markers that we use to determine our walk with Christ. Not our political parties, not our political stances, not anything outside of that threefold principle. To know God is to love God. To love God is to obey God. And to obey God is to walk like Jesus walked.
Will you pray with me? Father, we're thankful that you are a God that is not a balconier, that you had every right, you, you would have been just staying in your heavenly balcony, looking down on us with contempt and with derision, and not being willing to come down and redeem us to yourself. But God, we are grateful that instead of staying where you were, you became a traveler like us. And you not only came to save us and redeem us, but also to show us how to walk. I pray, God, that you would help us. God, as we leave this place in our everyday lives, in our interactions with others, in the midst of this, this toxic sociopolitical climate, help us as your church to really and truly walk like Jesus walked. Not theoretically, but really walking the walk walking it out with you and walking it out with others. Give us your strength, your wisdom, your power to do this because we can't do it on our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.